Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. It's T with the UFOs want to tell you something. This week, we talked to Kathleen Barton, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. We go over abductions. I give you a refresher on Betty and Barney Hill, being my first two weren't all that well. I didn't exactly put it in the best terms. Kathleen is well known for her abduction research and understands and feels for each abductee. She's a very prolific author who has just put out a new book. Kathleen is also an experiencer. She brings validation to the phenomena. And she points out that, in fact, this is all people need. If you know an experiencer or are an experiencer yourself or alien abductee, please reach out to somebody like me, Preston Dennett, Debbie Cobble, or many others. We are here to help and here to listen. If you'd like to reach out to me, just send me an email at theufos at yahoo.com or hit me up on Facebook at the UFOs want to tell you something. One of the big ones, my very first episodes, that's why I started my podcast this year, was Betty and Barney Hill. And I put the regression tape out there to make it more accessible for everybody to actually listen to. Um, could you give me a little perspective on Betty and Barney Hill being their niece? And I, I want to make it a little more clear for my listeners. I really didn't do a very good job. Okay. And just feel free to break in at any time if you have questions. Okay. And, uh, if you don't, then I'll probably just keep talking. I will pause occasionally though, if you want to just uh, fit something in, but okay. It was September 20th, 1961, when I arrived home from school in the afternoon, a 13-year-old seventh grade student. My mother was standing at the ironing board, holding on to the telephone, and I soon learned that she was talking to my aunt, Betty Hill. And Betty and Barney had gone on a short vacation to Niagara Falls and up through Uh, Toronto and over through Montreal and then back home into New Hampshire and down to the seacoast over a few days time. But on the way home from this trip, they uh, encountered what we now call a flying, uh, we then called a flying saucer because we call them UAPs today. UFOs is apparently becoming passe. And uh, So as I was listening, I became very curious. Well, what's going on here? Uh, Betty was concerned about contamination. Uh, My mother had agreed to call a neighbor of ours who is a physicist in order to ask for his opinion. And so then my mother called Betty back and told her that 
if she had a compass, she should take it out to the car to see how the needle reacts. Um, and so this physicist apparently knew something about UFOs or UAVs that we don't uh, didn't know in that time frame, at least my family. Betty did take the compass out and she held it over what she found to be new shiny spots on the trunk of the car that hadn't been there before, even the day before. And uh, when she held the compass above those spots, the needle whirled. But when she pulled the compass away a few inches, the needle dropped down. So that indicated a magnetic field around those shiny spots. They were all of the same size, about the size of uh, a half dollar, silver dollar, about that size. If you know what they look like anymore, <laughs> we don't see them very often. I have some in my collection, <laughs> I guess, to, for my children at some time. So anyway, um, I became very, very interested in what happened because I had never heard of this before in my life. But uh, my mother told me that same day that back in 1958, she had been out on a grocery shopping trip with another aunt and they had seen a large uh, cigar-shaped craft hovering over a field on her regular Friday night grocery shopping trip. They stopped the car and they uh, went to a home and the people who lived in the home that who they knew went out and they all observed this very strange craft with smaller craft flying around it. So I guess it was not the first experience that my family had, but uh, Betty believed that you know, they could possibly be real prior to this. Barney was a complete skeptic. He did not believe this was possible and he was willing to state that no matter what. So what happened on that night? And I should add that within two days, my family and I went down to Betty's and Barney's house. They lived about 20 miles away from my childhood home. And so uh, what happened that night is they were driving through upstate New Hampshire and at about 11 o'clock at night, they saw a new light in the sky. Uh, it was a bright light night. The moon was three quarters full and Betty was trying to identify what this light was. And Barney was just driving along. He decided that he was going to go home that night. If he grew tired, he'd stop, but he wasn't tired. He was going to drive home. And so uh, as Betty was watching over the next many, few miles, several miles, uh, the craft came in closer and closer and closer and they finally stopped and they took a look at it at Twin Mountain. And then they got back into the car and as they entered Franconia Notch, which is a beautiful tourist section of New Hampshire, it's natural. There's a ski area there, um, but it's a, uh, where the mountains uh, narrow in and, and slope up at a very steep angle. And it's, it's very picturesque. 
And so the old man of the mountain, which was New Hampshire state symbol until it fell, fell off the mountain in 2003, uh, was still there in 1961. And Betty and Barney got out of the car because this craft was next to the old man's profile, which was 48 feet from forehead to chin. And the craft was rotating and appeared to be at least one to one and a half times the length of the profile. Um, the craft started moving. Uh, they could tell that it was rotating. They could tell uh, that it was bouncing back and forth in the sky. Barney said like a, a yo-yo on a string. And it reminds me of what the naval officers described as, as bouncing back and forth like a ping pong ball. I think they were describing the same action. So back in the car, they're driving south. Uh, they exited Franconia Notch, went into Lincoln, New Hampshire, where the motels and cabins started in that time frame. There were a few touristic attractions. This was the off season. There um, wasn't much going on there at all. And uh, the craft was coming in closer and closer. And Betty said to Barney, stop the car whenever you can. I want to get another look at this. It's really closing in on us. And so before he could stop the car, the craft came swooping in and stopped about 200 feet above the highway and then dropped to about 100 feet over the highway. And Barney had to actually pull the car into the middle of the road, straddling the yellow line in the center. He opened the door, got out with his binoculars, and he looked up at the craft as Betty was looking through the window of the car. They saw a silent, hovering, disc-shaped craft with a low, a, a row of windows on the forward edge. And they could see a blue-white light uh, emanating from those windows. Barney stepped away from the car. It was running. The door was open. He um, moved toward the field, and the craft then swooped down over the field, even lower. It was now um, uh, about 50 feet overhead. And Barney was there with the binoculars to his eyes, standing at the edge of the road, looking up, and he saw what he described in the first report uh, written to NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena on September 26, 1961, um, you know, only a few days later. What he described was figures that were dressed in black shiny uniforms that frightened him terribly. Uh, and in and then uh, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena investigated, and he told that investigator that uh, they were somehow not human. They frightened him terribly. What happened was little fin-like structure, structures started to slide out, and um, something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft. And Barney immediately sensed that they were going to capture him, he said, like a bug in a net. Well, today we know that, that what comes down is a carrier beam of sorts. 
Uh, and it does take people. So Barney was uh, having the, the correct feeling that he was going to be captured. So he pulled the binoculars away from his eyes and went screaming back to the car to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. They were only uh, a short distance down the road when they heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the car in the same location where they found the shiny spots. And the impact that it had on them was that they had a tingling sensation in their bodies, an electrical tingling sensation. And anyone who's an experiencer knows what that means. That's what we feel when this occurs. And aside from that, their car started to vibrate. And the next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway with vague memories of what had occurred in the interim. They remembered uh, a roadblock. They remembered finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around. And they remembered a fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground. And they tried to rationalize all of this and say, oh, it must have been the moon setting. That must have been what we saw. Um, oh, there must have been an accident. We just don't remember it, that sort of thing. But they went back time and time again to try to find that dirt road where they encountered that roadblock and that fiery orb. Uh, it wasn't until after they had hypnosis with Dr. Benjamin Simon that started in uh, 1964 and ran for six months. He took Betty and Barney separately. They, uh, he reinstated amnesia at the end of their session so they couldn't share information. And then uh, at the end of these sessions, he did therapy with them. So during the six months that they were there, they had 10 separate hypnosis sessions. And uh, then they discussed it. Dr. Simon was looking for some kind of rational explanation for what had occurred. And he was, uh, he was thinking of the idea, well, maybe this was transferred from uh, Betty's dreams to, to Barney's mind uh, through psychic, uh, psychic awareness, or maybe uh, Barney overheard Betty telling these dreams that she had, and he developed his own story as the result. Um, so this was really important and interesting to me as having my social science background and psychiatric social work background. So what I did is I transcribed all 10 hours of those tapes and compared them sentence by sentence from the time they left on that trip until after they arrived home and their reactions. And what I discovered is that Dr. Simon's hypothesis was wrong because Betty and Barney, when they were separate, recalled having the same experiences in detail, but it was not in Betty's dreams. So and that told me as, a, as an investigator, that was a real experience. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that, Kathleen. No problem. And I also noted that while they're different, 
you know, they share the same similarities with a modern case, but mm -hmm. they're different to a certain, well, they're the same to a certain perspective. And then once they separate, it's two different stories. There was, she had no clue what was going on to Barney Hill. So she couldn't have actually led the, uh, what is the term I'm thinking here? Sorry. Um, she couldn't have led him in any direction because right. her dreams had nothing to do with that. I even remember hearing during the regression sessions, he was asking, where's Betty Hill at this point or where's Barney? And they had no clue. They didn't That's right. confabulate anything. So I found that very interesting as well. And I have her book, A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. Oh, it, yes. That's oh, out of print now. So that's valuable. And it's signed. So I was oh, glad to get oh, wow, that's this. even better. In there, she talks about how Dr. Benjamin Simon actually tried to influence Barney Hill to see if that would work. Yes. And it was found that he could tell the difference right away. Yes, yeah, he, he attempted to convince both Betty and Barney uh, that uh, it was a shared dream. And Betty and Barney tried to accept it, but then as they uh, actually thought about it and discussed it, they said, it can't be a shared dream. The dreams were different. Betty had written all of her dreams down. So I was able to compare Betty's and Barney's statements to her dreams as well. Now in Betty's dreams, the uh, ETs were, uh, looked a lot like Jimmy Durante. They had large noses, but they looked Southern European. They had black hair, thick eyebrows, all human features. Uh, their lips were a little bluish. The skin was a little bluish, but aside from that, uh, in her dreams, they were dressed in cadets uniforms, hat, light blue, kind of uh, outfit like a cadet, not, not in the black shiny uniforms that they were dressed in, which was more like a, a, a bodysuit, black shiny bodysuit that they were dressed in. Barney mentioned that from uh, an immediately that he had seen that that was in his conscious mind, but it had no comparison to Betty's dreams. And under hypnosis, Betty and Barney remembered what they really looked like. Yeah, and essentially it was the same thing. And yes, you know, he notes the Nazi and the Irishman, as he called them. Now, I had a theory about that. Now, I don't know whether that would be kind of a screen memory upon recalling that during regression, or if that might be more of an altered perception kind of thing during the event. So I don't know. If maybe that was a way to say, I don't know, like demonstrate an authority figure with the Nazi, for instance, and then the Irishman, you could tell it was playing on his motions to the point of almost being friendly and trying to be nice. That's what I gathered from that. Yeah. Um, what I can tell you is that Dr. Simon asked Barney to uh, tell him everything in his history that reminded him of the emotions he was experiencing in that time frame. Now, Barney was in World War II. He was in the army. He was a sharpshooter and a truck driver. I could never tell if he was actually overseas, but I know he was injured. 
he had scars on his chest uh, from the explosion that happened. But as with most black men or many black men over after World War II, uh, they were, the government was prejudiced and they denied a lot of those soldiers their rights as veterans of foreign wars. But I have letters that better, that Barney wrote to the veterans of foreign wars. So it leads me to believe, even though I wrote in the book initially that I had, did not believe he was in, that he went overseas. I'm beginning to think he actually did but I didn't know the history of discrimination by the government at that point. So um, to, to get back, I guess, to, to what you said, Barney, I think when, when he said he, he looks like a Nazi, he is a Nazi. That was just Barney's mind going back to Nazi Germany. And the fear, the level of fear that those soldiers felt in combat. And then the Irish, most Irish uh, in South Boston where Barney was working, he was at the South Boston Postal Annex. Those Irish were uh, really prejudiced. They were terrible to the black people. I, I guess initially they were, um, uh, vying for the same jobs. It was like, you know, no, no Irish or dogs need apply, something like that, you know. Um, and because uh, I'm, I'm Irish, my, uh, and my Aunt Betty was Irish. My grandfather's family, my maternal grandfather's family came over from Ireland during the potato famine. So it was funny for Barney to say, the Irish, well, he has good memories of some Irish from the family, but also of terrible prejudice expressed against him and the black co-workers that he worked with. And, and when they eat, ate in a lunchroom together, I was told one story by um, the son of one of the postal employees who were there. And what happened was, um, the, the white guys uh, had a bag of what they said was chicken wings. And they said, here, would you guys like to have some of these? We have some left. And they handed them to them. They opened the bag up and it was just bones. It was just, the, it was cruel. Yeah, but that's cruel. just an example of the kind of cruelty he faced, it, faced by the Irish at work. See, and that's, that's kind of where I was, I was thinking when it comes to that and him seeing those two things, maybe it was kind of like a reflection almost. Um, yeah. He wanted to be perceived as friendly. I, I believe he used that term. Um, so he wasn't trying, I, I don't really know where I'm getting with this. Yeah, I remember him saying he, they, he seems friendly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I felt like it was, they appeared that way. I don't know whether that was on purpose or like I said, a cover memory, but rather the one appeared as an authority figure in the sense of comply. And the other one appeared as an Irishman. In other words, hey, 
let's let's make this go well you know be nice mm-hmm. and i'll be nice to you that kind of thing mm-hmm. yes. i know i'm saying that a little confused and it could have been a screen memory too i mean that was my psychological interpretation because uh, knowing well, barney's history but it could have just been a screen memory well see i've looked into the work of dr carla turner and she does talk about in some cases there's this altered perception which mm-hmm. seems to relate around the abductee yes um one story for instance is that of pat in her book taken uh she talks she was a very religious young woman and when she was abducted with her family there was a lot of religious overtones to it there was a blonde-haired blue-eyed jesus that pointed to the gray aliens and said these are mine it's okay to come with us there was i believe kind of like oh man the terminology is messing me up here there was a wall of fire that she had to pass through and a lot of religious overtones to it Mm -hmm. and I kind of seen parallels with that to a degree with this case as well because while they may not have been religious they still involved like a Nazi and an Irishman and you know they weren't aggressive or anything like that Right. Yeah, they were not aggressive. Um, they, in fact, when they opened the car doors and took Betty and Barney out and took them to craft along the way, they were they were saying, um, we're not going to harm you. Uh, we have only a few simple tests that we want to do, and then you'll be on your way. In fact, Dr. Simon asked Barney if he thought he had been kidnapped. And Barney said, well, when I think of kidnapping, I think of someone being harmed and I wasn't harmed. So we know he wasn't physically harmed. Emotionally, uh, because of, I think, his his background growing up in a segregated cell and um, also his uh, war experiences. I think that those things uh, had an impact on him. Also that he had the conscious recall of observing these entities and thought that they were going to capture him. So there there was much more uh, emotionality in Barney at that point than in Betty, even though when she saw what they looked like as they were coming toward the car, she really freaked out. She, she said, told Dr. Simon she had never been so frightened in her entire life. And she was crying at that point, terrified. Yeah, I believe that she was, she was fairly irritated with them too, if I recall. She, she didn't want to be very nice at first, which is understandable. Mm, there was one that really bothered her. Uh, there were two sizes of grays on the craft. There were the taller ones who were the physician and uh, the the one she called the leader that we know today as the escort. It, he sees the, the human every time they take, are taken to craft. And so um, Betty was irritated with them because they took her and two with a little one who was standing in the hallway looking in. We know today that those little ones are uh, the police officers, you might say, the guards. They won't let you get off the craft with anything that belongs to them. 
And Betty tried to get off the craft with a, a tablet of sorts that had symbols on it. And he saw that she had it, he took it from her and she was absolutely furious. She was uh, so angry. And she stayed behind when Barney was taken back to the car, arguing, you know, you said I could have this. I want this as my proof. <laughs> and, and then the, her, the leader, the escort said to her, well, you know, the decision has been made uh, not by me, but by others that you cannot take that. I'm, and then he said, I'm sorry, we frightened you. And Betty turned around and said, do you think you can come back? She said, I know people who know far more than I do about all of this. And if you could come back, I could try to arrange for you to meet with them. And so he said, well, I don't know if we can come back. It's not my decision to make. And Betty said, how would you find me? Out of all the people on this planet, how would you find me? And he said, we can always find those we want to find. This was all telepathic, by the way. So yeah, they, they knew her signature. I, I doubt that that was the first time that she was taken. It might have been Barney's first time, but I don't think it was hers. No, I don't think it was either. The way she reacted, it doesn't seem too, uh, too indicative of that. Now, I did have another question. Now, this was never a good argument, in my opinion, but I want to see what you think about this. So okay. I've heard the argument that Hocus Pocus and Frisbee from the Twilight Zone and some Outer Limits episode may have brought that on with them. Now, I found that really weak. Very, very weak. In fact, I've written, I had written a paper about that. Um, I don't, I don't think it's on my website any longer, but on that Outer Limits show, um, it was about the Bifrost Man. And actually, the, uh, the disinformants have had a modern mask created to look a lot more like what Betty and Barney described. But if you go back to the original show with the paper mache masks as it really was, uh, done in those time in that time frame you can see that it's it's very different there's a human uh, uh, voice that comes out uh, there are human features uh, there is i'm trying to think there's something in here it's very different yeah i can tell you that when i when i lecture on it i show um what betty described as opposed to her dream material, and as opposed to what the Bifrost man looked like. Ooh, no comparison. Yeah, and it was the same with Hocus Pocus and Frisbee as well. Um, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> well, that one was an episode of the Twilight Zone. It essentially is the boy who cried wolf kind of story, right? And it's this guy is a liar and he gets abducted by aliens so nobody's going to believe him and he's trying to get off of there and he plays the harmonica you know which kills the alien and the alien is like a six foot tall black man with what seems to be dark eyes no mouth kind of thing it's 
reminiscent, but not reminiscent enough. And this, the tail on there doesn't even correlate whatsoever. It's more mm-hmm. or less like he's trying to take them to another planet kind of thing. You have two things going on. You have um, professional disinformants. Uh, they were prevalent for a very long time. Back in 19, January of 1953, the CIA-funded Robertson, CIA Robertson panel met and uh, had to make a decision about how they were going to handle all of this. Because by that time, our military had determined that these were extraterrestrial in contact. They, they were not from our planet. They'd been studying them for several years at that time. They'd done major studies. And so uh, they wanted to dissuade the public from uh, having an interest in UFOs. And what they decided to do is they were going to ask um, scientists to uh, use logical deduction to explain these events away and to poke fun or embarrass the individuals who reported them. And that went on for many, many years. I mean, even back until in, ni- in 2013, I believe it was, they were still hauling out what Stan Friedman used to call debunkers, but they're just playing disinformants uh, onto television shows. So you would have the researcher, the UFO researcher, uh, telling the truth about what occurred. And then you would have the disinformant who would come out with false information to line up with the truth. And so you had to choose, uh, is it, and, and by the way, the UFO investigator or researcher wasn't identified such as Stanton Friedman as a nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman. It would have been UFO uh, enthusiast Stanton Friedman versus uh, so-and-so who was a psychologist or a college professor or something like that. Bill Nye, the science guy, Philip J. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's really sad that that stigma has always been there, such as, you know, the term little green man, tinfoil yes. hat. I mean, that stuff, it drives me nuts. Yeah. And as you know, I've been talking to a lot of experiencers and abductees and Mm-hmm. A lot of them still can't even come out and talk to family, coworkers, friends, anybody. They they feel embarrassed about it, and I find that really sad. Yeah, it is sad because you have to hold it inside, and that's why support groups are just so important. I had set up, I was the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Experience or Research, for 10 years and I set up a program where people could go and speak confidentially um, to a person who would listen and not make fun. There would, it would be uh, just uh, without passing judgment, non-judgmental listening and just a little support and people could get a referral to a support group if they wanted. MUFON is changing that now. So you cannot do it confidentially anymore, but you can have anonymity. And those, there will be a report written, but it will be in a a section of the case management system 
where only two people, I believe it is, will ever be able to access it. So it's still pretty safe, I think. I think you're but, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, more and more people are coming forward with their stories and, and there are more and more, um, you know, peer facilitated support groups. I run my one myself, um, but it's for people who uh, are, have been able to uh, come to terms with their experience and are wanting to reach out to assist others. If, if anyone's interested, uh, you go to the-awakening-souls.com and there's an application, but read what we have to say. There are four of us who started this group. Uh, there's no charge for it. Uh, we pay for everything. I'm very glad to hear that you did that because, you know, I had just recently started actually talking to experiencers and abductees. I've always done the research since about 2008 or 2010. I started listening from regression tapes. I think I even started with Betty and Barty Hill, mm -hmm. but actually being able to talk to these guys, man, uh, even just some UFO witnesses, I see how much it just, it bothers them that they can't get it off their chest. So I am very glad to hear that. Yeah, and it, and it does make such a huge difference just to be able to tell somebody who's not going to laugh at you and not going to ask what you were smoking or what you were drinking or anything like that or tell you to go see a psychiatrist. Um, you know, that it's terrible that people would treat other people in that manner. And if people are not ready for the awakening souls, I, I have a whole list of support groups um, that, where I can make referrals. And you know, they, they don't cost anything, but everyone should have the opportunity just to get it off their chest, to talk to somebody about it. Oh, I agree. I mean, I've just, I've had phone calls that, you know, none of them are going in the book, just me and that person talking, none of it went on the podcast, just back and forth, just hearing them out and understanding that they actually went through something. Yes. That brought a whole new thing to them you know mm -hmm. it made me really sympathetic and until I actually had done that myself I I didn't I suppose I didn't really understand that aspect I'd heard it before but actually witnessing it was a lot different mm -hmm. yes and yeah. it, it kind of awakened me to that too where I was like well I I don't because I don't know of a whole lot of support groups where I can send people either. The only thing I could really think would be MUFON. Um, now that you've said that, I'm glad to hear that because I will definitely send people that way. Yeah. Can I send people to you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, okay. Um, That's great because uh, people, I, I just get deluged with email messages and I cannot speak to everyone or I, I wouldn't even, I mean, I've worked more than full time. And to fit all of that into, I ended up having to charge. It's, it's not a lot of money. It's only $30, but um, that's, it reduces the number of people who come to me uh, wanting to speak with me. And so uh, it would be great if I could refer these people who don't want to pay or can't pay to oh. other people. Yeah, feel free to send me as many as you'd like. I just, okay. you know, 
I tried. You're one of my inspirations, Bud Hopkins, and obviously John Mack. Uh, Dr. Carla Turner, I'll throw in there as well. It's just the fact that being able to help these people, it means a lot to me. It's kind of like when me and you spoke before about the Intruders Foundation. I, I hadn't mm -hmm. known that it had closed. I got on there and I found a blog, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. And I think getting these people some help in the sense of somebody to actually listen to them and take them as credible and just let them talk about the experiences and let them know they're not alone is extremely important. Absolutely. Um, you know, I started out probably like you, but only it was uh, 32 years ago. And uh, I, of course, I knew about my aunt and uncle and I was, I am an experiencer and uh, for many, many years was just traumatized, walked with trepidation in the darkness at night, uh, couldn't sleep, had all of the problems that, that, all, that other experiencers have in general. And I, uh, I could never find anyone who did the kind of thing, that non-judgmental listening, the acceptance of the story, now, they, they weren't around except for maybe Bud Hopkins, but then I would have to go from New Hampshire all the way to New York City and pay for all of that, you know, and back in the beginning, as it is now, I've stayed at Bud Hopkins' house when he was alive and he's even hypnotized me, but it was different back 32 years ago when, when I started and, you know, I had my first experience as far as I know when I was 17 maybe before that. So that was even further back, but you know, there was just no one, there were no support groups. There was no one to talk to. And it was, it was really difficult in those days. Yeah, and like I said, I, I really wanna help with that. So yeah, feel free to send me anybody you'd like. I don't have a very big podcast or I mean, my YouTube channel is pretty much non-existent. I mean, I all upload this on there, but I'm not very well known right now. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking well, we all start pretty... out that way. <laughs> well, I think I'm building a very good rapport because you know uh -huh. I'm polite and I listen to everybody's, you know, what they have to say, and I try to be sympathetic. I don't think anybody's crazy, okay? And I know the abduction phenomena can get really weird, <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. I like to hear people out and you can usually tell just from the emotion on some of these people that they had an experience. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, you're also going to find people who have a major mental illness hmm. and uh, those people are the neediest because there's always something happening and they need to tell 30 people, not just one. And they have uh, the experiences they report are just far more terrifying and frantic than, than others. Uh, you're also going to find eventually people who have had experiences with interdimensional um, draconian reptilians. Um, you have to protect yourself around those. I tried to help a man who 
was having hard experiences, just awful. Uh, he, I knew that it was not a psychological case. He was a high-functioning, well-educated man, but he had become extraordinarily ill over the months that we spoke. And then finally, he told me some things that happened that he observed. And it was so horrifying to me that my vibrational frequency, which is generally quite high, dropped. And when it dropped, one of those draconian reptilian interdimensionals um, attached to me. All the goodness, I could feel all of the goodness flow out of me and a dark cloud come out down over me. And uh, it, was, it was very difficult. I tried to get rid of it. I used all of the religious uh, things, the holy water, um, having my house cleansed. Um, I'm Catholic, so I had crucifixes. I had everything. I used prayer. It didn't go away, and I started to become sick. And I couldn't sleep. My body was hurting. I was having difficulty that I didn't normally have. And then it started talking to me and telling me to kill myself. And that is when I said, I absolutely have to do something today. Now, I have a friend who is a psychotherapist, but she's also a minister. And uh, she lives three hours away from me. And so I called her. She tried to remove it. She couldn't. She was going to come down. Um, in a couple of weeks to remove it. But um, when it told me that I needed to kill myself, I uh, called Kevin Briggs immediately. And in my new book, Forbidden Knowledge, you'll read about Kevin Briggs and the Council of Eight. This was um, a study that I and other researchers did secretly over a period of several years. And uh, with the Council of Eight to determine who they were and if they were real. And I, this was one of the tasks. Can Kevin, will you please, this is what's happening to me. Will you please ask the council to help me? They said they'd protect me. It went away right away. Wow. He spoke to the ninth dimensional member of the council and it was gone. Yeah, That's overnight, weird. within hours. Yeah, so um, that was one way I knew that they were real. I had a lot more evidence. And in the book, Forbidden Knowledge, um, uh, the second half of that book is about communication with non-humans and what they have to say. And all, all of the questions, 120 questions that we asked uh, and there's very specific answers. That's very interesting. Yes, yeah. So it gives a lot of information about why they're here, how long they've been here, um, what their concerns about humans are, um, and and more and more. I mean, 120 questions. It's a lot of information. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to pick it up, and I yeah. hope my listeners. We'll pick it up as well because you know you're very prolific you know uh -huh. like i said you're well known 
for your abduction research, and I consider you one of the experts. That's why I felt it was important to have you on. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as, because I want to get this out to some of my listeners as well, as far as abductions being aggressive, now what do you make of that? Uh, it depends upon the type of entity that's abducting you. I've worked on three major studies on experiencers, two with PhD academics, and on about 5,000 experiencers and all to this uh, date. And uh, the reptilians tend to be aggressive. And sometimes grays, because there are some grays who work with the reptilians. I've been told that they were that they're captives of the reptilians. I've also been told that the reptilians created them and they're just biorobotic um, and, and it's made to give the greys a bad reputation. So I don't know what the truth is on that, but the reptilians tend to be aggressive. Although a few people have told me they've been very kind and they've healed them, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, in terms of the others, the greys are generally uh, not aggressive toward people, but there are many, many different uh, races of greys too with different modus operandi. On the Council of Eight that I just spoke of, there were two greys and I have ongoing contact with one of them uh, who is about five feet tall and he's a, a scientist from Zeta Reticuli and from that star system. And uh, he's uh, has a good sense of humor. He's given me a lot of information and I like him. He, I can't see him when he comes because he's fifth dimensional, but I can feel him because I have a strong tingling sensation in my body. And I like this electrical, light electrical tingling. Hmm. Um, you know, so, and there are two grays, as I said, one is a tall gray and they're both very kind. They said on the count, the council members said that the only races of ETs that they've invited as part of this extended uh, federation is the, the reptilians and they don't wanna be part of it because the federation and the councils have the bylaws that everyone has to go by, rules and regulations. And those entities do not want to uh, comply with the rules and regulations. Those reptilians will take anything they want. They think they own everything. And they say that the reptilians are like this on every planet that they go to, all of the inhabited planets. They go in and they, they just want to take over and claim ownership. And what do you make of this insectoid? or praying mantis type? Yeah, well, they're very frightening to look at, but there's one on the council who uh, I like. He seems like kind of a jolly fellow, but still um, for people, I mean, it looks like a giant bug. They're, They're humanoid in shape, but their bodies are different from ours. They, they, I believe have an exoskeleton Their arms and legs are extraordinarily thin. They have arthritic looking joints. uh, So they look almost skeletal. Uh, They tend to disguise themselves. 
because they frighten humans. Uh, so they'll wear a mask. Sometimes they'll wear a full suit. I have a video that was sent to me for analysis. That I, this was for a television show I was doing. And uh, it was obviously a praying mantis, very, very tall, very thin. It was wearing kind of a hood that reminded me of a welder's hood. There was this cutout section here that you, uh, you could not see through. And it was wearing a, a floor length cape. And when it walked, it walked very stiffly and the cape was stiff. So like the legs would go out and the cape would go out too. And I've heard that before too. Yeah. I, there's a lot of cases like that. And that is one thing that always kind of threw me off is I never understood the cloak thing, right? Because I know a lot of times when people are abducted and specifically see that praying mantis, they notice the cloak. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the little grays are wearing those as well. Mm -hmm. so that's always something that puzzled me but now that you kind of put that in perspective that way I mean that makes a lot more sense yeah they 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 do it so that they won't frighten people um sometimes they wear a full body suit of uh, kind of a mint green like green color um so uh but in terms of their temperament what they do on the craft they tend to be in charge on the craft that they're on and uh, they tend to be the examiners. The grays tend to be the escorts and the assistants. Uh, they, the insectoids are uh, intense. Everyone will say they're so intense. Mm -hmm. And especially in that eye to eye contact with these big vertical bug eyes, if you see their eyes um, and you have that eye to eye contact, um, they the way they communicate is not really good because they might make you believe that they're eating you or they're eating off your face or they're eating off your arm. But they're just trying to tell you that uh, you are only a shell for your soul, for your consciousness, and that, you know, the, you live in that body but that body is shed eventually and you go into a new body. So that's what they're trying to say, but uh, they have a very odd way of communicating it. They've scared so the pants off some people when they've done that sort of thing. Um, and other people describe them as being nice and kind. I, I've heard, oh yeah, I've heard that as well. And there's one other thing I was gonna ask you about that. Have you ever heard an abductee referring to these insectoids as mother. I've been catching that one a lot lately. Um, Dr. Carla Turner had an experience when she was a young girl and she has a very vivid memory or had one. Mm -hmm. And the praying mantis was saying, come with me, I'm your mother. And she was yelling, no, you're not. Right. There's another lady I was talking to named Linda Smith who also said that very same thing. Uh, I believe her husband had that experience and right yeah, then I know it Linda. flipped. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, that, uh, you know, I don't know why they think that uh, they can tell people they're their mother and they are going to remember it. Unless, I've worked with people who uh, have that kind of relationship with the mantis type beings where uh, the human 
was a mantis in a previous relationship. And that mantis might have been the mother. There might have been that loving relationship. And that human, the human that I have worked with in hypnosis, absolutely loved that being. Didn't want to go home. Didn't want to go back to the, the earth. Wanted to stay with her people. I hear that struggle a lot with people. They either really want to go home or they want to stay. And I think Betty Hill, if I recall, really wanted to stay with them for a little bit. I, I'm, like I said, I've had a long day at work, but yeah, if I recall, um, she was not opposed to staying with them for a little bit. No, for a little bit, no. Um, but she did not want to stay with them for any period of time. But I can tell you, two weeks before she died, she said, in two weeks, I'm going to be on craft with them again. And uh, two weeks later, she died. Wow. And, uh, you know, so who knows? I've, I have been told by psychics that she's and mediums that she's on craft back with them. And that, you know, maybe she came from them to begin with. Maybe she was a, one of the volunteers who came to Earth, one of the early volunteers and reincarnated into a human body uh, in order to assist in our development. Well, as far as communication, obviously that's telepathic. Um, what do you make of that? What do you think would be behind that? I always describe it as more of a possible biological neural link, as an example. Well, that makes sense to me. They say that telepathy is the universal language. Other animals talk using telepathy. We've just lost that ability. They say that we once had that ability. And it would be good if we could develop that again. So they work with us. When we're on craft, we can communicate telepathically. And now those of us who are older, who have known them for many, many years, uh, can have them come into our environment where we don't see them, but we can communicate telepathically. Yeah, I... I tried to attribute that more to possibly brainwaves. Um, I, I could be way off base on that, but that's how I try to make people understand it, I suppose, because we have five brainwaves. It could even be maybe there's some sixth brainwave we don't know about that they're able to tap into and communicate that way. Mm -hmm. It's really not all that hard for me to believe in fact, there is a very good book called Electric Brains where he goes into that. And, you know, it was very fascinating. So that's just what I've always attributed to that. But some people, I think they think it's all woo-woo and hard to understand. And really, it's, it's not. You just got to look right. at things differently. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. I don't know if uh, it's you know, what the process is, I don't know. All I know is that I've done it and I can do it. And it is a matter of 
deeply relaxing and not thinking about anything. Just kind of clearing your mind. Yes. It's like going into a deep state of meditation when it can occur. That's very interesting. Wow. Because I, I myself am not an experiencer. Um, so I try to put myself in that shoe a lot. Mm-hmm. And the telepathic communications, I've never experienced it. I can definitely believe it. It's just I try to, I want to understand a little more, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, as, yeah. <laughs> as far as understanding abductions, I can understand they are very different from sleep paralysis as an example or just dreams because i've had ufo dreams i've had abduction dreams and i can immediately wake up and sleep paralysis and immediately wake up and be able to distinguish the difference even a couple Mm -hmm. months ago i had woken up in the middle of the night and i tried to force myself to see an alien in my hallway and that didn't work so When it comes down to that argument against alien abductions, it makes no sense to me at all. That's true, because, uh, well, we, in in, uh, one of our studies, we asked, and and this was with 516 experiencers, we we asked first, uh, have you woken up uh, paralyzed and only able to move your eyes? Well, 90% of the participants said yes. Then we asked, if, uh, have you been wide awake? Have you observed non-humans in your environment? And then have you become paralyzed? 60% of the abductees said yes. So that completely eliminates the hypothesis that it's sleep paralysis. Uh, Yeah. Or sleep hallucinations. These people are awake. Sometimes they're not even in their home. They're outside when this happens. Yeah, example, Betty and Barney Hill are a good example with that. Um, they were outside when this all occurred, driving yes. home. Um, Absolutely. See, another argument that I usually use against the sleep paralysis thing is sleep paralysis doesn't last that long. These right. experiences can last over a good amount of time. Now, the average mid-ta- uh, missing time is two hours. It can span to, you know, far less than that or far more than that. Some people like Travis Walton were taken for five days. I've talked to others who were taken for extended periods of time. Um, And then I've I've spoken with people who didn't really notice missing time, but had an experience with uh, evidence or were returned before they were taken. So the timeline is different with these ETs. They don't have linear time the way that we do. And that would explain how time goes differently in some of these cases too. Yes. So what would you make of cover memories as an example? So like people seeing owls and things like that, Yeah, that is uh, perplexing to me because I'm not sure if these entities are uh, putting these thoughts into the human mind. We know they're quite capable. Uh, They know what we're thinking. They know uh, what 
our next move is going to be. They've shown that with the Navy and the government has admitted to it. Mm -hmm. um, so they could be manipulating our minds because the fifth and sixth dimensionals uh, from the council said they have their own bodies. They cannot shapeshift. They, they are in that body all the time, only at a higher frequency. So it makes me believe that it's probably um, the idea that they uh, are just manipulating our thoughts uh, and that they're doing this so that we won't be disturbed by their appearance. Again, so they, they're doing it in kindness, they think. Uh, people see deer in the road as they're driving down the road and then they're taken to craft. Those aren't deer. <laughs> Under hypnosis, they're uh, grays generally. People, the children see clowns or firefighters or um, police officers, things that make them feel safe. Um, bunny rabbits, huge, like five foot tall rabbits. And, and some adults have seen those too. Um, yeah, Preston Bennett that. just did a video about them appearing as teddy bears. Whitley oh. Streeter talked about mm -hmm. Mr. Peanut. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's uh, Terry Lovelace with little gray monkeys. I mean, it it's pretty prominent. And I never knew if it was really the hard part to distinguish whether it was us or them that was doing that. Because I know within psychology, cover memories often happen so with a traumatic event now it doesn't necessarily mean that it is like they're trying to harm you it could just be perceived that way and you're seeing it as a harmful thing yes my interpretation of that is i suppose yeah it comes down to that it's either us or them it's either our minds perceiving them in a way that's going to make us feel more comfortable or it's them appearing that way on their part to make us more comfortable. And distinguishing the two is something that was kind of hard for me to get at. I understand that and I think that it's a good hypothesis. Um, I think in order to determine this, we have to think about uh, ourselves as humans. We have a limited number of screen memories that, that we have of these entities. Uh, they're, they're deer, rabbits, as I said, and on and on. The things that I just mentioned and you just mentioned. Uh, if it came from human minds, wouldn't there be more? Wouldn't there be a greater variety? Mm. That's a very good point, because when I spoke to Preston Dennett, he mentioned that too, because owls are very prominent, as you know. Yes, absolutely. So I suppose, okay, that, that does answer my question. It is very helpful to me, because that is one of those things that's always perplexed me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it is perplexing. They're, the behavior of these ETs and... Uh, the, the way they can communicate, the way they know our minds is, is very perplexing in a sense. Now, when, when I'm talking to people, 
when something registers as true, they make me feel through my crown chakra this tingling sensation. Um, sort of as uh, evidence that, yes, you're right on that one, Kathleen. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate it. Uh, it also happens when I speak with experiencers and, and um, they make a statement or ask a question. Wow. So it's helpful. It's a little bit of a psychic sense in a way. I haven't always had it. I've only had it since I did this experiment with the Council of Eight but it, it's useful <laughs> and it feels good. I'm glad that I can help people that way. Yes, I, I am very appreciative of everything you do, Kathleen. You do a lot of great work out there and help a lot of people. That's what I try to do, you know. I've always been in a helping profession, first as a social worker and, and then as a, a teacher and education services coordinator and, um, that's, that's where I come from and from the heart. And, and that's what I do. I do have to make income because uh, it's my full-time job. I have to say more than full-time. Um, but for years, I, I didn't accept payment for anything. And see, that's understandable. And, you know, everybody has to make a living. Like I yes. said, I work full-time job. I just got off of work before I talked to you. I mean, it's just, there's a lot that goes into this too. Yes, there is. So how can people reach out to you? Uh, you can go to my website at Kathleen with a K dash Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. Uh, and once you arrive at the website, you will uh, see the books, you can order autographed copies of any of my six books. Uh, you can read free articles that I've posted. You uh, can contact me for a hypnosis session or for uh, a consultation, a one hour consultation, or you can find out where I'm going to be speaking this year. Well, like I said, I wanna thank you again. Um, are you going to be speaking anytime soon, like a MUFON or anything like that? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'll be in Pennsylvania in April. I'll be in McMinnville, Oregon in May. And I think it's May. Uh, I will, it might be June. It's all on my website. Um, I'm, I will be at the Roswell UFO Festival the 4th of July weekend. Then the following weekend, I'll be speaking at the MUFON Symposium. I'll be speaking in Exeter, New Hampshire, probably over Labor Day weekend. A couple of weeks later uh, in Michigan at a conference there. So yeah, I'm lining up conferences, live conferences this year, which is really nice to, to be doing live conferences again. Say so in-person kind? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, good. In person. Because I might try to go to one of those. I'd love to meet you in person. Oh, that would be great. I'd love it. Uh-huh. Well, Kathleen, I want to thank you again. I want to thank you for all the help. My pleasure. For people as well. Thank you. I, I do the best I can. You do a great job. And best of luck to you as well. Thank you so much for reaching out to experiencers because... So many people 
needed and truly appreciated. I I have gathered that. And, you know, that's, well, I guess that's what I'm here for. You know, I enjoy it. And like I said, I get a great deal of satisfaction helping people. So, Mm -hmm. but I will let you go. And I hope you have a good night, Kathleen. Thank you. And you're a special person. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Kathleen. Well, you have a good day, Kathleen. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye.